This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Before you get stuck into your podcast, I'm Jonathan Agnew talking you through a very new mini-series hitting Test Match Special. It's called Project Ashes. Over the last year, I've been speaking to the people who are in charge of England's attempts to win Down Under. It's loud. They let you know that they don't like you. Got to try and embrace it if you can. We're under no illusions. You know, in our last 10 tests, we're 9-0 down. England have only won once in Australia in the last 34 years. But could that change this winter? And in comes Pat Cummins from the far end. He bowls to Stokes, who hammers it for four! Come up against this baggy green thing that they keep talking about, and I'd love to, you know, stick one of them. This is Project Ashes. Listen on BBC Sounds. Now, back to your podcast. You're listening to the TMS Podcast from BBC Radio 5 Live. I'm Eleanor Aldroyd and welcome to another bonus TMS podcast. It's the third part in our series of Ashes Tour Tales from the Test Match Special Team out here in Australia. We are here bringing you full commentary on the series from the evening of December the 7th. Today we ask what makes playing in the Ashes out here so special and why it's important to make a good start even with the very first ball. Well, here we are in Australia on a sunny day and feeling incredibly privileged to be here for maybe another chapter in Ashes history. Who knows, with five test matches lying ahead in the future, anything is possible. Um, And with me are our correspondent, Jonathan Agnew, who's covering his ninth Ashes tour. Stephen Finn, who's toured here three times, including England's last win 10 years ago. TMS commentator, Simon Mann. And to add a historic and statistical perspective, Andy Zaltzman. Let's just start by delving into the memory banks and having some thoughts about when the Ashes in Australia first entered our consciousness. Um, I suppose I, I remember the centenary test of 1977 listening during the night, but that wasn't part of an Ashes series, so it doesn't really count. But, but Simon, when do you remember first listening well, through the night? First, I there was an amazing game. I remember mm. listening to, to most of that game through the night as well. 74-5, the Dennis Lilly Tomo tour. If Lilly doesn't get you, Tomo must. And, and in those days... Test match special did carry commentary, but only the last session of the day. It's, it's remarkable to think back that we didn't have through the night commentary. There was no through the night television. That was a 1990s thing. So you had the last session of the day. And I can remember I woke up every morning of that series in time to listen to the last session with, without fail, even though England were 13 nil down and it came towards <laughs> the end of the series. I just w- I woke up because I was absolutely obsessed by cricket as a boy. And you were, it was that moment where... You know, you looked at your watch and it was you know, just coming up to four o'clock and you knew that shortly they would go on air and you were thinking that you had no idea what was going to happen. Absolutely no idea. There was no, you know, there was no, obviously no internet. There was no sort of texting or anything like that. You had n- literally no idea what the score was going to be two, after two sessions of each day. So there was a real sense of excitement. What were the, what were the commentators going to say? What was going to be the tone of the presenter in the studio? Because obviously he knew what the, the score was going to be so you could almost sense from the first thing that he said how it'd been going uh, for England or otherwise and, and normally on well on that tour it was it went pretty bad so it was amazing you really did sort of have that sense of being you know, of, of the ashes being such a long distance away so it was a, it was a, re- a remarkable 
feeling really and yeah. and, uh, and Tomo and Lily and then you wanted to see, you wanted to see these guys they were terrorizing England you wanted to see them in action you wanted to see Tomo and then there were the highlights in the evening uh, every day on on the BBC half an hour of highlights and you saw Tomo this slingshot action terrorizing England's top order yeah I, I think I could probably say um, because it was only four years ago that I got to my first Ashes tour out here Jonathan haven't been a cricket fan all my life really and and I think I could probably say Ags that you, you've been responsible for some of my best moments in the early hours of the morning and more often worst moments in the early hours of the morning. Let's clarify that. Because it is that moment, as Simon says, you know, you wake up and it's the it's three o'clock in the morning and you're kind of half awake and you, you switch the radio on and, and you're just waiting for the score. You're waiting for that, that first score and, and sometimes, you know, you're not fully there. And of course, with, you know, TMS are extremely good at giving the score all the time, but you might have lain there for a second and you thought, Who's, who's the bowler? Um, who's the batsman? Oh no! Is, is this is that's the number eight is in already? Can't work it all out. But but I mean, for, but for you, when was your when was your first? Well, I don't suppose memory? many around this table will have the team photograph of Ray Illingworth's Ashes winning team uh, from 1970-71. But that was my first connection. Really, I was ten then. Ten, yeah, going in on eleven, and so I was into cricket then. And, and um, I just remember. I don't know how I got that team photo. Uh, but, uh, you know, looking back at it now, there's, you know, Illy was captain and I played under Hailingworth and, you know, my hero Peter Lee was there. It was a young Bob Willis was sent out as a replacement for, for Alan Ward. And it was an heroic tour. Uh, incident packed. There was John Snow's incident on the hill at Sydney, of course, when a, a, a spectator grabbed him and so on. The players all got together in the middle and refused to carry on beer cans flying, all, all that sort of stuff. And it, that sort of, that did fire the imagination a bit. Then, of course, Australia came to England and that was Bob Massey and Dennis Lilly and Ian Chappell. And, and so just gradually, and I'm like Simon, I guess, 74-5, um, I, was, I was banged up at school. So I couldn't, I couldn't really listen very much, although I tried hard to. And we, I never saw the highlights. It's always been, a, it was for years, a real frustration of mine that I never saw any of that series because I, 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 wasn't, I didn't have access to a television uh, and I've managed on I think a tour here to get an old VHS of it uh, so I, I could actually watch them and see Keith Fletcher getting hit on the cap on that actual badge you know from a, a quick ball and actually the ball being caught at cover <laughs> you know this is this is serious mm. this is serious stuff Colin Cowdery going out you know, his, his rescue act and so on but again like you yeah listening through the night uh, to Centenary Test, Alan McGilvery's voice really resonated because it sounded a long way away. And, of course, it was very Australian. And they gave the score all wrong, uh, these strange things called sundries. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so you think, what's all this about? But it, it just... I think, I think lying in bed listening in the dark, I know that from, from listeners' feedback, is actually... Because you, you, you can't let your imagination just run right a bit. And, and, and you, you have to try and fill in the gaps that we don't give... And you do lie there, conjuring up the images that we hopefully help. Uh, you don't always get them right, and sometimes they're completely different. But lying there in bed at night with your earplugs in, eyes shut, listening to the cricket is, I think, just an absolute... It's a, it's a magical experience, mm. hopefully. Yeah, the crackly four-wire, I think. Is what yeah, well, it's not so crackly these days. No, it's, it's not. Enough, it's people, very clear. People can grumble about that a bit, but, you know, it's just, that's modern technology, and it does sound hopefully sounds as if we're almost in the room next door but there was a bit of magic about that about the delay and about the crackle certainly Finney what about you because you are of, a, of an era when you could actually watch TV through the night as, as a youngster yeah I mean the amount of times I was actually allowed to do it 
because of school and the stuff was limited so I generally stay out to watch the first session um, and then go to bed and wake up for school and that the next morning but the first Ashes series that was in my consciousness probably was the 0-2-3 Ashes um, here when Michael Vaughan scored all the runs um, mm. and uh, that's when I was like acutely aware of it but then the first one that I took a great like real interest in were the 6-7 Ashes and and the one day of cricket that I remember up staying later, staying up later than maybe I should have done, was the day where Paul Collingwood got um, all his runs in the Adelaide Test match. I don't really remember much of the first Test. I mean, the Harmison first ball, um, but yeah, the the one where I was like, "Wow, England are doing amazing here," um, was that day in Adelaide when Paul Collingwood scored the runs, and then four years later. I was there playing with him and I was like, what on earth is going on? They're like in this parallel universe where I transported myself from being on my sofa watching it four years earlier to being in the team with these guys. So it was a real surreal experience. I love that shout he gave because he, he hit the ball straight down the ground and he knew it was going to be his 200. He could, and he shouted mm. almost as the moment he played the shot. And he could hear it in our headphones as all off the pitch mics. It was a brilliant yeah. moment. That and, was amazing. And, as a and, and so what was it like for you to, to be here for the first time as a player? I mean, what was that? Can you sum up what that excitement felt like? Well, I think you're, you come into it completely naive because everyone talks about how difficult it is and how tough it is and a lot of the rhetoric about the way we speak about it is it's hostile it's it's hard so I sort of anticipated it being this like nasty place where everyone got stuck into you you walk down the street and people are abusing you and it's a bit like that and you're English and and people do enjoy um, sticking a knife into you when you're walking down the street but that first tour I was naive to that in the beginning and then we drew that first test match and then won the second and all of a sudden the Australians were being friendly to us and all the other guys were a bit like, well, why on earth are they all being friendly to us? But it's because we'd won their their respect. So that, that's my big memories of that first tour were the fact that the Australian people actually quite liked us. Um, and then on subsequent <laughs> tours, I realised that's not actually the case. That they, <laughs> that they really don't like us. Um, and they were just, it was like a feigned niceness because we were actually beating them at cricket. <laughs> Andy, what about you? What was your first Ashes memory down under? Well, the, my, my first memory of Ashes in Australia was 1982-3 when I'd have been eight years old and I'd become obsessed by cricket in the the end of the 81 summer and my dad had bought me books that had all Bill Frindle's stats in the back and it was uh, already clear by that stage in my life that uh, playing was not going to be a, a, a huge success so I th- became obsessed with the numbers but I remember in the 82-3 series uh, when Norman Cowans took, took six wickets at Melbourne it was the fourth testing and were 2-0 down so they had to win to stay in the series they held the ashes from from 1981 and uh, I just remember breakfast news as a child about to go to school saying Norman Cowns had taken six wickets and they were on the verge of victory Australia nine down and then that dramatic uh, fifth day when they Australia almost got over the line with Border and Thompson and then my second memory is the next day's breakfast news seeing the winning catch uh, Botham bowling to Jeff Thompson dropped by Chris Taveray and Jeff Miller caught the rebound and that's one of the sort of strongest memories of my entire childhood, really, <laughs> and the excitement of, of that thing. England still had a had a chance. In terms of uh, radio, um, I remember in, uh, my first memory of listening to the Ashes was the 1990-91 series, and um, we sort of tend to think of England just losing all the time there. But they went into that series, haven't had a really good summer. They'd beaten New Zealand and India. They'd had a good tour in the West Indies. Had won in the West Indies for the first time in in a long time should have gone 2-0 up in that series so they were on a bit of an upward curve and then they were bowled out on the first day of the series but the second day I remember vividly sitting up at night and I'd school the next day I think 
past past midnight, and they had Australia at sixty four for five. And I remember the uh, th- fifth wicket was Steve War. Just checking, just looking at the scorecard now, um, and uh, he was. Uh, caught by Robin Smith off Gladstone Small and I remember jumping around my bedroom in the middle of the night <laughs> thinking yes we're going to be because they've been hammered in 1989 and um, you know sort of growing up through the 80s England had you know struggled against most people done quite well in the ashes but this so it felt like this was an opportunity and then of course ended up losing the game by 10 wickets and losing the series 3-0 and uh, it was just a, a decade and a half of pure misery after yeah. that but, uh, <laughs> but that moment Sticks sticks in my mind very clearly, and that and that nineteen ninety one tour, I guess. So you were there as a journalist. So this is early early part my of your first career. Test. Your, yes. your first test, and it's the thing, isn't it? When you kind of jokingly say to a recently retired player who's gone into the the press box, "Hope you brought your boots with you." Yes. That actually happened to you. didn't Well, it, it did because I'd retired that previous summer, and so I did take my bowling boots out. And in the warm ups in Perth and so on, I I, did, I bowled a lot in the nets actually, and I enjoyed it. But Mike Selvey, I remember, kept saying to me, "You can't you can't have a foot in both camps. You can't do it. It'll, it'll, you'll get caught out." And I thought, ah, I'll be all right. And we got to Brisbane. Of course, Gooch, as we talked about in a previous podcast, was out because he'd had that finger injury uh, playing and then playing tennis. He'd had an operation. So Alan Lamb was captain. And I remember two days before, which was always the preview day here in Australia for, for the journalists, uh, my little light was flashing on my phone in my hotel room. And sure enough, it was a message from Mickey Stewart saying, please bring your boots and come along and bowl. So, I'd, of course, I did. And... Um, we just waited to go out and bowl on the nets and so on. And Peter Lush, who was the manager, came over to us hacks and said, look, I'm sorry, as you know, it was all a bit of pressure going on here, but there'll be no captain's press conference today. So we'll say, hang on a minute, you've got a new captain. You've got Alan Lamb as captain. It's the first test of the Ashes. This is ridiculous. You've got to have a press conference. He said, no, no press conference. Um, and so I'm standing there with my whites on and my boots amongst the sun and the mirror and the mail and everything else. And I could, you could almost feel the eyes sort of burning into me, you know. So I said, well, in that case, Peter, I'm afraid I, I really can't come and bowl in the nets. Because that would have given you an exclusive access that well, the other well, press guys weren't going to get. Well, it would, but also, you know, I'm now one of them. Mm. You know, I am a, I'm a, I'm a hack. You know, this is, this is a test of loyalty, really. So I said, I can't come and bowl in the nets. So, so the next day, the Sun newspaper ran the headline, Agnew tells England to get stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a little harsh, because, but, it, but it does demonstrate... You know, you, you can get caught, and as a, especially as a tabloid writer. And there was a little bit of feeling about a player coming in and taking a writer's job in those days anyway. So that was an early an early challenge, of it. and Mike, Mike was quite right. And my bowling boots are still in that hotel in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> I took them back there and just gave them to the, to the concierge and said, they'll do something with those. So probably still in a plastic bag somewhere in the hotel in Brisbane. Can, can you imagine that now, Finney, that, that one of the press, the press pack comes out? And, or have any of them done it in your time? Has anyone come, come out of the press bowl. box and had a bowl? Or <laughs> no, a bowl? well, I actually do have my boots. And when I or went to New Zealand with TMS in 2019... I remember Joe Root saying to me a few times, come down and bowl, come down and have a bowl at the boys. Um, and I would do it, you know, I, I, I think I would do it. Um, but because of COVID and everything here, it's going to be it's going to be difficult. But my bowling boots are in my bag. <laughs> um, and with all the travel restrictions that are happening now, I still hold out hope to play my 37th test. <laughs> you never know. Well, you never know. No, exactly. You're just talking about injuries at the Gabba. It could, it could happen. Uh, Simon, so when you when you came here for the first time, what your, so your, this is your fifth tour, isn't it? 
on the ashes. Yeah, it's probably my tenth time to Australia, a couple of World Cups. I did. The first time I came here was an England A tour, actually, before the 94 five ashes England uh, they, they sort of cobbled together an A team to come out here and, and play and it was actually sort of a bit like jobs for the boys it wasn't like they do now with the, the Lions where they, they look at all the promising young players there were one or two promising young players actually Mark Lathwell was on that tour and he made a, a brilliant hundred at the SCG I think Glenn McGrath was playing and one or two other very good Australian bowls he made this wonderful hundred and he thought here's a test player uh, of the future and of course he did play a couple of test matches but I don't think he ever really believed in himself Mark Lathwell and I, I, I don't think he thought he should be playing so you know that, that so that was that was an eight tour and then 94-5 you know those vivid memories of uh, that, that first ball, Slater smashing. Martin McCaig you know, oh, <laughs> yes. going off the field. Uh, Injun, I, I don't think that endeared himself very much to, to Michael Atherton, uh, England's captain on, on that tour. It was, a, it was a tough old tour, Australia batting first, and Martin McCaig, I, he didn't last the test match. I think he had a stomach upset. Uh, I think there was a feeling that, you know, you've got you've to tough it out. What, what, what was it? What was the Australian? Malcolm Conn described um, well, Martin McKay. because he's Australian. He was Australian, Australian, yeah. He was, he was uh, the rat who joined the sinking ship. <laughs> 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 I liked Martin, actually. He was a nice, he was a, a nice, nice bloke, yeah. yeah. I got to know him on that on a tour, and then he went on the, the 94-5 tour, but he didn't actually cover himself with that much glory. And, and Agus, as a young cricketer, you actually you came out here, didn't you? I mean, obviously not, not in Ashes, not playing in the no, Ashes, so but, I, yeah, but you so came I, out as a player. Yeah, and um, after my... Well, I only played three first-class games at the end of one summer, and it was by, as I was 18. And they had, in those days, something called a Whitbread Scholarship, which they would um, give to sort of promising young, maybe three or four of the time. I think Ian Botham was the year before me. It's when he had that infamous dust-up with Ian Chappell that was on his Whitbread Scholarship. So basically, he gets flown off to Australia and go and play great cricket, um, which, which was great. I mean, unfortunately, there was no... I wish there'd been more structure to it. I mean, more training schedules and that sort of thing there was nothing really I was just flown out there as an 18 year old didn't know anybody I was told by Colin Cowdery who was sort of the face of the Whitbread uh, Frank would be there to meet you and I said okay thank you and flew off arrived in Melbourne 18 years old no idea where I was uh, sure enough there's a, this fellow there bald bloke had a sign up saying Jonathan Agnew and I'm Frank hello I said hello Frank nice to meet you I uh, went and stayed at Frank's house and it took about a week to realise it was Frank Tyson <laughs> I had no idea who Frank was, a nice chap. Um, but uh, I didn't know who he was. And um, Frank, Frank... One of the greatest fast bowlers of all time. Exactly. Frank, um, Frank he liked a beer in the evening, Frank, but, I mean, only a very, very, very small one. He, I don't think Frank would ever claim to have necessarily held his drink particularly well. And so he'd have a sip, and suddenly this red mist would come down. You think you're fast, do you? I'll show you. And he'd grab a tennis ball from somewhere and go into his garden... <laughs> I'd be sort of slinging the ball down all over his garden <laughs> into the hedges and be uh, scrambling at the ball back with, with that famous slingy action of his. You, know, you think you're fast? I'll show you what fast is. And uh, I had a very enjoyable month with Frank, uh, who was a lovely bloke. And he, he, he did all the coaching. for He ran the coaching for Victoria Cricket Association. And so during the week, he would send me off around uh, coaching around the schools in Victoria and so on. So I saw a lot of, a lot of the countryside uh, doing that and then go and play great cricket in the, on the weekends, which is quite an education. <laughs> Baby crying there. The mere mention of Frank Tyson still <laughs> reaction from Australia. Terror in Australia, quite right. Destroyed them in the uh, that 54-55. Ashley, you said 20, 25 wickets in the three tests that England won. Wow. Richie Beno still says it's the fastest bowling yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. Let's go down. Let's drill it down to the very the the great openings, the great opening moments that we've seen in Ash's Test history at the Gabba, because uh, people will remember 
Steve Harmison's first ball, but there have been some, some pretty memorable moments for, for all sorts of the right and the wrong reasons. Well, yes, I mean, I think that's probably the most memorable first ball of any series um, when Steve Harmison rewrote the laws of physics uh, with a <laughs> delivery that, that went, went to first slip. And that, that sort of presaged a 5-0 defeat after England had that fantastic win in in 2005, which Harmison was such a such a big part, and I mean, there's, we mentioned how England's had these sort of terrible micro starts in 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 Brisbane. That first ball from De Freitas to Slater in 1994-95, after Australia won the toss on a good batting pitch, ended day one 3.29 for four. And then Shane Warne took 11 wickets in the game. Nasser Hussain winning the toss. So that was naught balls in. Things started going wrong when he had <laughs> Australia in to bat there. 125 for one at lunch uh, in in that game. In 364 for two at the close of day one. The Harmison ball in 06-7. Uh, 109 for one at lunch. Australia and uh, 346 for three at the end of day one. So some pretty poor starts. Then Strauss out in the first over that, that um, Finney mentioned. Um, England bowled out in the first day. Peter Siddle took a hat-trick. Of course, that game ended well, but it was another sort of <laughs> tough beginning to the Ashes. But I mean, it, recently, the bowlers have struggled in the opening session at Brisbane. The last seven Ashes tests there, just a total of uh, eight wickets uh, in the opening session. So it has tended to be dominated by the, the, the batters early on. Siddle's hat-trick was his birthday, wasn't it, as well, I think? Just to, I think, to I crowd think that. No, I said the, Harms, the Harmison one. <laughs> so poor old Steve does that, and England get hammered. And, of course, we're all getting stuck in, and you know, the body language looked awful. He just felt like the ashes had gone already. And I remember going to Adelaide, and I was on about, I don't know, the 12th floor of the hotel, I suppose, there, and I pressed the lift to go down, and it coming down, and I'm waiting, waiting. Lift door opens, and there's one other person in the lift, <laughs> 12 floors up. <laughs> It's Steve Harmison. The little <laughs> door closes, and I'm trapped in there with Steve all the way down to the bottom. And we sort of looked at each other, and we said, "He's actually carrying his bowling boots." I said, "Where are you off to, Steve?" He said, "I'm just just go to the nets, like into the practice and lift door open." I've never been so pleased to see those lift doors open at the bottom. Uh, I mean, in terms of uh, the, the stats, there's a slight curiosity with the the first, uh, the end of day one in Brisbane. 21 Ashes tests in Brisbane. And the team batting at the end of day one has only lost twice. One of them was England's uh, last match there, 2017. They were 196 for four after James Vince um, and Stoneman had batted very well on, on the first day of the series. And then 1982, England were 219 for nine at the end of day one. Other than that, mm. the team that's been at the crease, whether they batted first or bowled the opposition out and uh, started their first innings, uh, has not lost an Ashes test at Brisbane. That Harmison ball... Aggers, because you were on commentary for for TMS. Jim mm. Maxwell was on commentary for the ABC, wasn't he? I think it'd be fair to say that your your commentary is rather different. They sound very different. I mean, you can almost hear the whoops of glee uh, <laughs> on the ABC version, whereas mine was just sort of complete disbelief. I think remember. It just it was just so horribly wretched. I mean, it was just. But what I looking at it back you now is the way that Freddie just caught it and just tossed it back as if it was like <laughs> catching practice before the game. And you can see a bit of bemusement around, like people thinking, does that really, did I see that properly? Did that really happen? But it just, it just, you could just feel the deflation. Mm. Boom. Because it just betrayed 
I'm afraid all the anxiety and the nerves and, and everything else going into this in, in, into that you know, a, a massive game and and with the memories of the 05 series still so so fresh as well. Yeah, and it's a, it's a quite it's, it's interesting that game because I don't think people realise quite how hard Australia were going to come back after 2005. I really think England didn't really get that. Um, with their preparation, their build-up. And you just sense, I remember in 2005, the Australians at the Oval watching the presentations and you could feel them, you know, almost saying, right, watch this, watch it and take this memory back with us because we're, mm. we're, we're coming back at you. And, of course, you know, they really hit England hard in that, in that series. They were ruthless and they, you know, 5-0. That, that, that moment of the first ball, Finney, in the test matches that you played at the Gabba or you were involved with, you were out there for, what, what are your feelings on, on those days? Because I mean, I suppose everybody in the back of their mind had that Steve Harmison ball. The one test match that we played at the Gabba, we were batting. So I watched the first four balls and then Strauss got out and I disappeared back to my little rabbit hole. Because you underneath. cursed him. You, uh, yeah, exactly. I, anyone that I watched live that game got out. So I was like, <laughs> I'm getting out of here. I don't need to watch this anymore. But you're, you're so aware of the significance of it, of starting well. I think all of the conversations that you have in the build-up to the test matches, whether it's a press conference, a team meeting, whatever it is, it's you have to start well. We want to start well here and make an impression. And you try your hardest. Steve Harmison didn't run up meaning to bowl that ball to second slip. He was probably almost trying too hard to bowl the perfect delivery. So it's finding that equilibrium in, in that state between being really hyped up and amped up and wanting it and stressing about it being perfect and then being too chilled and not caring. You want to be somewhere in the middle and that's the perfect balance but luckily with James Anderson if he bowled a ball to second sit there would be something very <laughs> very very wrong yes. um, with the world if that happened so um, so I, I don't think that it's going to happen this time around actually talking about the build up to the first ball of the first day of an Ashes test match in the 13-14 series here it was Kevin Peterson's 100th test match and when you play your 100th test match you get a commemorative silver cap on a tray it's beautiful in this glass box that says congratulations you've played a hundred test matches and Giles Clark came out to the middle to present Kevin with his silver cap and I remember him doing this speech about saying what a great servant Kevin had been rightly so to to the England team and gave him his silver cap I remember Kevin looking at it really proud I've played a hundred test matches and then he looked a bit closer and it said Kevin Peterson. They spelt his name wrong on the silver cap. So I had to give it back to Giles Clark. Pretty annoyed. Like, I've played 100 test matches for you. I've been one of your greatest players ever. And you can't even spell my name right on my commemorative hat. And that was a signal of how the rest of that series was going to go. Do you, have, you, you don't have to wear the silver cap during the game. Well, it'd make it a lot hotter and a lot, a lot harder work than it already is. Quick thought about, about NASA. That, that toss, that notorious toss. Well, all I can remember about that was was that I was sent down because there was a sort of general air of disbelief and I don't think we were actually on the air at the time but so word got out that England won the toss and put Australia in and I think that I think Peter Baxter the producer at the time sort of sent me downstairs to check <laughs> I went down to where the dressing rooms are and there's a lot of shouting going on <laughs> and, and I asked someone down there I can't remember one of the other players I think, I think the, the sort of the, the 12th man almost sort of evacuated the dressing room and I asked one of them is it right we stuck him in they sort of yes <laughs> so I went back up uh, and that, that was really all I can remember about the actual thing but there was a general total disbelief at, at 
at, at what had happened. I think I think it I think it did do a little bit, but again we didn't we didn't bowl very well. But it was it was it's more of a defensive decision really. I think NASA worked out some sort of way in which he thought it was a least likely way that England would lose the game by by letting them bat first. But uh, I, I, it, was a, it was a bizarre one. Well, actually, if you, if you listen to Nathan Lehman on this, who is England's stats guru, he says actually did reduce England's chances of losing the match statistically. I asked Nasser about this because I wrote an article about it, the importance of winning the toss and he said, nah, he says, total cock up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you will be able to find out exactly what happens that first ball and that opening day of the Ashes 2021-22. Commentary on the first test from 11pm on the evening of the 7th of December. I'll have news on Five Live throughout the night and across breakfast and of course part of our commentary team will be Jonathan Agnew, Andy Zaltzman, Simon Mann and Stephen Finn. Thank you so much uh, for the, the podcast and look out on this stream for more Ashes Tour Tales and also don't miss Project Ashes, the special series Agus has done with exclusive behind the scenes access over the last 12 months. England bowler James Anderson brings all the news from within the squad on Tailenders alongside Greg James and Felix White. And Mark Wood is among the guests you'll hear alongside Kate Cross and Alex Hartley on the No Balls podcast. And that's also available on the TMS stream. This is the TMS podcast from BBC Radio 5 Live. Match of the day. Top 10 podcast. Gary Lineker here to bring you a little message. Match of the day. Top 10 podcast is back once again exclusively on BBC Sounds. It's too late for me now, man. Yeah. yeah, it's too yeah. late. It's fine. Well, we get some more dates for match of the day then. <laughs> Yes, myself, Alan, and the busiest man in football punditry, Micah Richards, return for Series 5. He was never going to Man City. Man United could never, ever have allowed Cristiano Ronaldo to have gone to Manchester City. The Match of the Day Top 10 podcast, only available on BBC Sounds. Coming soon on 5 Live and 5 Live Sports Extra. He's done it. He lifts both hands in the air. Licks his fingers, tosses the ball from hand to hand. In a moment, there'll be a burst of applause because it'll be Brad. What a phenomenal cricketer this man both of them is. McGrath roaring towards him and he's out caught and slip. The Ashes. He's bowling. The stumps out of the ground. What about that? This winter on Five Live and Five Live Sports Extra. 